Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is Anthony Anarino, author of Leading Growth, the proven formula for consistently increasing revenue, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Anthony Anarino for the fifth time to talk about his book, Leading Growth, The Proven Formula for Consistently Increasing Revenue, published by Wiley. Anthony Anarino is a reader, writer, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and a sales leader and trainer. He has written and published a daily post every day since December 28, 2009, amassing over 4,600 posts on sales, success, leadership, and productivity. The main thrust of his work is in human effectiveness. His previous books are The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments That Drive Sales, Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competition, and Elite Sales Strategies, A Guide to Being One-Up, Creating Value, and Becoming Truly Consultative, all of which have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. His books have been translated into 18 languages. And interesting fact, after high school, he moved from Ohio to LA, where he was the lead singer in a hair metal band and where he was at least once mistaken for the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Anthony Kiedis. He later graduated from college and law school. Anthony, congratulations on leading growth and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. I thought you would never get to me again. Oh, well, well, well. So 
recently, your uh, brother from another mother, Jeb Blunt, was on the podcast uh, for the seventh time. And as you may have heard, the only thing he wanted to know is that he is further along than you are in the Marketing Book Podcast. I mean, you guys are are very close, but you're also very competitive, like like the expert sellers that you are. <laughs> we are uh, sibling rivalry. <laughs> oh, right. That would right. be the name of our rock band if he and I played together. <laughs> yeah. We very much enjoy each other's company, and we talk all the time. And um, we, we are competitive, but in in a positive way. Yes. Well, the one thing that uh, he did say, you know, as it relates to you, uh, is this, and I, I recorded it. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. <laughs> you know, he has that Southern uh, accent. So uh, now listen, on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, there's going to be a picture of Anthony from his hair metal days. And you folks can look at that and see how it, it might have been very easy for him to be mistaken for the, the lead singer of the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And there's also going to be, well, there's going to be a lot of links, but one of them is the link to your book website that has a number of really helpful resources uh, that I think folks are really going to find helpful. So um, another interesting thing about Anthony, if, if it's okay if we talk about you a little bit here, Anthony, he is capable of talking for over three hours on on a single breath, something that has caused his teenagers <laughs> to voluntarily surrender their car keys to avoid another lecture about character and avoiding poor choices. Anthony Anarino, you're my hero. I'm just thrilled to be on again. Now, so he's seven, I'm five now, is that yes, right? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. But, but I think I'm going to live longer and write more than him. <laughs> I, I believe it's true. Peter Drucker published his last book when he was 93. He did oh. 52 books, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Philip Kotler, the father of modern marketing, he's in his uh, early 90s, and he's written a lot of books. And I have interviewed him uh, three times, and he's still got several more books in the works. He's, wor- he's working on right now. So there's yet another person to uh, provide some inspiration. And he, he in uh, his autobiography, he wrote quite a bit about uh, Peter Drucker, and, and they were uh, acquaintances. So anyway, congratulations on being a member of a very elite group, the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. Now, you are playing the long game, as you started to touch on there. And in doing an advanced search on Amazon, I see that you have another book coming out at the end of 2023. Tell us about that. I actually gave the speech for the first time at Outbound um, last year. And the book is called The Negativity Fast. And uh, I've actually practiced this for a long time, just getting rid of all of the negative uh, influences and all of the things that people generally take into their mind. And uh, this is going to be a very prescriptive book. So people that are living in what we call the ACDC environment, not the rock band, accelerating constant disruptive change. That's where we are right now. And it's hard for people to have the certainty. It feels more stressful than it's ever been. And I think this book is necessary. Yes. And I read with interest in the book, I think it was in chapter seven, where you write, negativity is the only cancer that spreads by contact. I believe it's true. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to see that one. So quick message for the listener. There's always a first-time listener on the Marketing Book Podcast, and I'm glad you're here. 
Marketing Book Podcast. Why is there a book about sales on the Marketing Book Podcast? And it's because the best, most effective marketers have a deep understanding about sales, the sales process, what their salespeople are doing, and even more importantly, the buyer and what the uh, buyer's uh, hesitations are and uh, that sort of thing. And I can remember years ago interviewing this guy named Anthony Anarino, and he said, you know, marketers should spend a day with their salespeople at least once a month. And there have been other books. So there have been over 60 books about sales alone on the podcast. And there was another book uh, some time ago, an interview with uh, Debbie Gagish. And she mentioned that there was one company where if you are going to work in marketing, you have to spend 90 days in sales. <laughs> I just thought that was Ooh, a, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So, and we're going to talk about some of that. So, I want to read uh, from the prologue. And it's a little bit about the the military and got me excited because I was in uh, the military. And just to get people kind of ready for what I, the story I'm about to tell, I'm going to play a few uh, sound effects from uh, Full Metal Jacket. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. You slimy scumbag, get on your face and give me 25. Do you think I'm cute? Do you think I'm funny? And then it also brings to mind the thing that I most heard when I was in the military. What have we got here? A fucking comedian. It didn't always work well, but... Let me read from this. You write, My friend Tom Strasberg had a high school buddy named Jeff. Jeff wasn't exactly certain what to do after high school, so he joined the Army. Jeff's experience in boot camp was the stereotypical representation you've seen in every war movie. Jeff's drill sergeant worked his recruits hard, relentlessly telling them they were the worst recruits he'd ever seen in his many years training soldiers. He insisted they were not fit for his beloved Army. Over several weeks, the recruits got used to the insults until the comments were expected, regardless of their performance. Then one day, the drill sergeant changed from insults to a challenge. In the evening, as he had his soldiers in formation, dog-tired and hungry, he challenged someone to step forward to fight him. He'd badger them, belittle them, curse at them, insult them, doing everything in his power to compel someone to engage him in combat. The drill sergeant was tough as steel, and he could also make their lives miserable. As you might imagine, no one stepped up. There was little upside for accepting his challenge and an enormous downside. One day, after the drill sergeant had spent weeks prodding the soldiers to muster up the courage to fight him, he said, isn't there a single one of you with the courage to step up and tangle with me? Having heard this same challenge for weeks, Jeff took one step forward without turning his head toward the drill sergeant. No one said a word for what seemed an eternity. The drill sergeant looked at Jeff, pointed directly at him, turned to the other soldiers and said, this is your squad leader. Without another word, the drill sergeant turned and walked off the field. So, Anthony, why did you include that story at the beginning of this book? <laughs> uh, well, the first time I heard it, I was practicing Aikido with Tom, and he, we went to dinner, and he told me that story. And I immediately took notes on that story because of the power of that story. The leader is the person that steps up and takes accountability for doing something that's very, very difficult. And you, you were in the military, so you know we ask you to do the most difficult things that any human being is being asked to do. And when I heard it, I, really, I immediately honed in on this idea 
that this is leadership. Like somebody has to step up and make sure that these things that need to get done, get done. And that is a leader. It's not a title. It's somebody that has the courage to go ahead and lead others. Yes. And uh, there was a book on the show years ago called uh, 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. And it was all about, it wasn't, it wasn't about commanding a platoon in combat. It was about stepping forward and doing what needed to be done uh, to get the organization moving in the right direction. And you, uh, you write that the formula for revenue growth is simple and straightforward. You start with your expected revenue going into a period and subtract the churn you expect before adding in the net new revenue you expect to acquire. And you write that the revenue growth formula is simple, but it isn't easy. There are three ways you can grow revenue. Sell more to your existing clients, acquire new clients, or raise your prices. So with a simple formula and only three levers needed, why is revenue growth so difficult for sales organizations, uh, sales leaders, sales managers, and their teams? There's a, so many reasons. I mean, so, so many reasons right now. Right now, we have this great uncertainty. We call it the ACDC in, environment, so it's very hard for that. Um, it's also just difficult to sell altogether, and there's a whole bunch of things. We, we try to break them into internal and external. So mm-hmm. external, you know, what, what happened is the, there's an internet now. And salespeople were taught to come That's in and fad. say, let me tell you about my company. Yeah, it's a fad. It'll go away soon. Watch. <laughs> but what happened is that the internet um, now lets clients go directly to your website. And so the salesperson that comes in and says, Doug, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you about our great leadership team. Let me tell you about our clients and show you all these logos. And let me tell you uh, about our products and services and how they help companies just like yours. All the things that that salesperson used to say when there was no internet uh, was very helpful for people. But with an internet, you're two clicks away. So there's no reason for you to have those conversations anymore. And most sales organizations have not adopted what we would call a modern approach, which is insight-based. And we don't do any of that. So it's no why us, which is what the marketing people really like. Doug, you know that. And we're going to talk about that. There's a great quote towards the end of the book I'm going to talk about. And everyone should keep listening because it's really going to upset the marketing people. But <laughs> that's called a tease. I uh, may, Make sure they have my email. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't wait to get the, the notes. Yes. Uncertainty makes it hard for, for clients to move. And then because people are now trying to get consensus inside their own company, which is close to impossible... It's very hard to get a group of people to say yes when they have competing incentives and competing ideas. And then the sales conversation that used to look linear, we now know is completely nonlinear. So you have people come into a conversation, leave the conversation, come back later. And then, of course, we have two other things in sales that makes it really interesting. It's also true for marketers. Um, you have a timeline to do this. And you have competitors working against you at the same time. So there's a bunch of, uh, I would call them headwinds there. And then you have to start with losing churn. True story, two years in a row, I lost my two largest clients, $7 million one year. A year later, I lost another $7 million client. And to get my revenue back to what it was, I needed $9 million to get to even. Uh, so that's the kind of things that happen that make it really difficult for you to grow 
because you have to catch up. And then there's just the things that salespeople do or don't do. So too few opportunities, uh, the variability of performance between individuals and low win rates, all of those things tend to make it difficult to grow consistently. So you write that leading growth and increasing your revenue begins with a vision of your future results. And vision is a term that means something a little different to everyone, I would think. Explain what you mean by vision and you know, obviously why it's important and, and what, what happens when companies skip that or give it short shrift. They don't, they don't even care about it until, until they start to understand how important the vision is. How do you get an alignment from a team when you don't even know where you're going? So I think it's very, very underrated. And it comes in first because until you have a vision of what we're going to do this year, how we're going to get there, what strategies are we going to need, what do I need my team to do, who do I need them to become to be able to do this? So Let's say I did 50 million last year, but now I'm going to do 60 million. Something's got to change. I mean, if I did the same thing I did last year, I'm going to get the same result I got last year. So now I have to start doing something different. And I think that the most important thing is to get the vision directionally right. You can work on things as you go and make adjustments. That's always going to be necessary. But I think without this, it's very hard to talk to your team. And so a lot of what you see in the the first chapter on the foundations for growth and vision is things that I actually require of my team. Like I want them to work, work on large accounts that really care about what we do, that have the problems that we can give them the best strategic outcomes. And there's a whole bunch of things like that, that when you tell the team that that's what you want from them, you're giving them strong direction about where they need to go, why we're doing this. What are we going to become on the other side of this? And all of those things are important for humans who think they want uh, purpose and meaning. Like when there's no purpose and there's no meaning, I think the the quote that I used was um, from Edward Abbey, which was uh, uh, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Yes, I mean, and, and that's what it feels like if there's no purpose or meaning. If we're not out helping people get better results, why are we doing this? Yeah, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. That got underlined when this knucklehead was reading your book. And I can think of uh, organizations I've worked with or in where it was about, about that vague. And uh, I'm wondering if those that do pay attention to this, is the biggest problem that they're just not specific or clear? You have to be pretty specific and pretty clear, but you don't have to have all the details on how you're going to get there. I think it's better for you to have a good vision, know where you're going, and then start moving in that direction. And then as you start moving in that direction, you start to understand, we need to do more of this and less of that, and we need to make these changes. I mean, it's, it's like an airplane. It's off course all the time. You're constantly adjusting, right? But, but you know where you're going, well, or where you should be going. We hope. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, 
time-consuming and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary... They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. So let's jump to another part that I thought was uh, very interesting and deals with uh, people's resistance to change. But you talk about a transformation is a burn the boats on the shoreline kind of change with a shout out to Cortez. And you're right, transformation isn't something you do by providing your team an email about the changes you want or a training program to improve your team's ability to make a cold call, neither of which is likely to drive the behavioral changes necessary to go from good to great to exceptional. What are some of the biggest barriers you've seen to real transformation? And what are the the non-negotiables? In other words, if a company doesn't have this, it's just not going to work. The most important thing if you're doing a real transformation, and you're actually going to grow and develop and produce much better results, then the most important thing is the behavioral changes. And if you don't have the behavioral changes, you will not make a transformation. So some of the things that, you know, I'm concerned with is do the managers have the will to impose those behavioral changes? And can you get your team to let go of the, what what I call the strong pull of habit? You do something for 20 years, it works for you for 20 years, and then it doesn't work nearly as well, but you're comfortable in it and you know how to do it and you like it. And you don't want to do something that you're going to be uncomfortable with. So those are the sort of things that I always always worry about. Can the managers really have the conversations? And the, the first rule in uh, this section is go first. Like if you want them to change, you have to change how you engage with them. And if you engage with them the same way you did in the past, you're going to get the same result you got in the past. Yeah, th- these are changes that might hurt, and I can't resist. There's a great quote that really caught my eye on ch- page 196 where he wrote, As you read this book, you are going to make a number of changes, some more difficult than others. This book offers a comprehensive approach to revenue growth, and it's easy to pick the easy changes while avoiding the difficult ones. True facts. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's says. There was also in the earlier part, you talked about how if you, when you're setting your vision, if your goal doesn't cause you to ask yourself, how on earth am I going to do that, then it's not big enough. So, you know, it's one thing, and you talk about this at the end of the book, where, you know, some company owner will come along and say, I want to increase revenues, and I'm not going to add any more resources, not going to add any more, they're not going to do anything, they just suddenly want to proclaim, just just go make more revenue, <laughs> It just it, it reminds me of in my agency past where you know I, I would have a, co- a conversation with a company, and more often than not it was like a SaaS company, and they would say, "Well, we want to double our revenues in the next six months," and I would say, "That's great. What can you know? Can you tell me what's led to that decision, and and what else what else is afoot 
to to make that happen. And and there wasn't much there. They're like, no, no, we're hoping maybe you could do that for us. <laughs> okay. They went they went and got an Excel spreadsheet and just doubled the numbers. Yes. And yes. that was the plan. That was yeah. the plan. Like double the numbers. And this is how you know people are crazy. Well, yeah, and or they're smoking hopium, or uh, I don't know. It's just uh, it's not good. Well, the, the, let's talk about the communication, which is uh, interesting to a marketer like me. You write that communicating for revenue growth requires a different approach. <laughs> How so? Well, if you've been inside of a sales organization, or maybe even in a marketing organization, I'll let you tell me whether that's true or not. Leaders say something, and they believe that everybody heard them. They (laughs) comprehended it. They have the skills to execute it after hearing it exactly one time, and that now they're going to go march, and all these things are going to be done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is why this is why people don't have their revenue grow, is because the communication has to be constant, and you have to say something so many times that eventually people believe that, one, you believe it, and number two, they start to believe it themselves. And the teams that I build, I always called large accounts anchor accounts because they would anchor a branch and they would give you the revenue that you need to run a, a really nice operation. And everybody on my team knows at every single conversation, I'm going to ask you, what anchor accounts did you have meetings with? What anchor accounts did you win? Why are you not calling on anchor accounts? Mm-hmm. Did I mention <laughs> and, uh, anchor accounts? Go, yeah. And I will continue to do it until you get me my anchor accounts because I need those. Mm-hmm. And if you don't say it over and over again, I don't know why we think because we communicate to a group of people one time or two times, they don't even hear it. They have all these other things going on in their lives and they don't hear all those things. If you're not going to stay on the path and communicate continuously over and over again, same thing, all the time, it won't be true for them. And then as soon as you decide you're going to change your communication, then you're really in trouble. (laughs) Then you introduce something new and they're like, oh, good, that other stuff? We don't think about that anymore. Yeah, I didn't think that was going to pan out. that's generally what happens. Start out with a bang and end with a fizzle, as you talk about earlier uh, with the transformation. You remind readers, though, that a lot of sales forces suffer from too much communication. Why should listeners and sales leaders not be worried about repeating themselves? I gather you get a lot of pushback. Not once they understand that you can change the data you can change the story. Mm-hmm. You can change the the news article that have, has some sort of a perspective on it. You can change all those things. So you don't have to be boring and repetitive. I mean, you can if you have children and you really want to punish them like I do. So that's how I do it. I just keep repeating myself until they're like, I get it. And I'm like, I'm not sure you get it. <laughs> I have to make sure you get it. Uh, and fortunately, it took a while, but I would say I took a lot longer than they did to to learn what I needed to learn. But they, <laughs> you have to keep repeating it in different ways so people get it. And not everybody gets it when you write it in an email. And not people get it when you say it. I mean, it takes time for all these things for, for, for them to understand them, truly understand them so they can do it. So you have to keep communicating. Yeah, and mix it up. But like you were talking about, you just gave an example about anchor accounts. And you said it about four different ways. <laughs> And you can tell a different story and have different data. Doug, 
if if you don't give me my anchor, this this we're we're not going to make it through this whole conversation here. That's right. That's right. Well, and I appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on because you're all about effectiveness, and yet you still come back and talk to me. And at the end of the book, you said you have a file of dumb things smart people say. And I read that and I thought, well, I'm definitely not in that because I'm not smart. But, you know, I wonder wonder who, who he is keeping track of who's saying all these dumb things. And you gave a little bit of an example there. But let's talk about leadership because uh, you've snuck a leadership book. This is about sales leadership, but you the different styles of leadership really, really resonated with me. And you say that you're... Part of leading growth is understanding when your team needs something different from you to secure their best performance. In fact, one reason sales leaders fail to grow revenues is that they only lead with their default style. So what are some of the key successful leadership styles uh, that you see and recommend? And, And some of these may not come naturally to some people. The most common one we would call the democratic consensus builder. That's the the leader that wants people to engage with them, to like them, to have conversations with them, and they're trying to get buy-in all the time. But not everything should be treated this way. So the opposite side of a democratic consensus builder is an autocrat. And you can be an autocrat, and, and you have to be an autocrat for some people at some time. So if you decided to go into a group of salespeople and say, hey, uh, how many calls do you guys think you need to make every day to be able to get the meetings that you need? And they're like four, maybe five, I don't know. Uh, and then you realize that you can't go on consensus on this. You have to be more autocratic and say, there are certain things that have to be done for you to be successful. They're non-negotiables. You have to do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to fail and then we're going to fail, and your family's not going to get the the money that they need, and your clients aren't going to get the help that we're supposed to be giving them. And you have to continue to tell them, like, this is a non-negotiable. You're going to prospect for 90 minutes between 9.30 and 11 every day. And people don't love that, but they do love when they get commission checks because they have went out and got opportunities in one business. And so you have to have the right sort of approach for different people. I am reluctantly a laissez-faire leader, mm-hmm. but oh, and so am I. I noticed that. I, yeah, exactly. I have a lot of people. I only hire people that don't need a manager, because if I had to manage them, I would be horrified and I would fire them. So I know I have to pick people who are mature, already doing their own work. They they can take care of themselves. And then I'm there as a sounding board to help them. So that's my strategy. So if that is you, what happens to generally people like us, uh, Doug, that are laissez-faire, is when we get mad at people, we immediately go into autocrat and scare the heck out of them because we're always like hands off. And then all of a sudden, wow, you just changed just like that. And uh, all of these, so when you look at all seven or eight of these, they're all important at some point in time. So that beginning thing that you read was really important. What do they need from you? So somebody who is uh, a very good worker and you can leave them alone because you can be laissez-faire with them, that doesn't mean you can treat somebody else that way. People who lack the discipline when they come into sales because they love the autonomy, but they lack the discipline, you have to impose that discipline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to work here, 
Close. So <laughs> on the autocratic style, I have to add here, you write, let me begin with a disclaimer. I'm not suggesting that you become a full-time autocrat placing a picture of Joseph Stalin next to the one of your significant other and your children. And trust me, and skip the bushy mustache. What, what is the issue with Stalin's mustache? Because I think that was really one of the few things he did do well. <laughs> it was, I think it was like sort of too far out underneath his nose. Uh, oh. I, I don't know. Most people won't look, most people can't carry that. I, I don't think so. Right. Saddam Hussein was able you to. You could, though. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. But I don't, I, I, I grew a beard during the lockdown. I'd never grown one before and I didn't like it. So, you know. There you go. So I want to get to this uh, topic that just I hear about a lot, and it, it's probably the most unbelievable thing to me. And you write that many sales leaders avoid making their sales force prospect. Why is that? And how does it even work? So here, here's what's happened over a long period of time, Doug. What, what's happened is that when sales leaders and sales managers start talking about prospecting, salespeople go like, oh, this is a micromanager. Actually, they're not a micromanager. They're a macro manager because that is a big outcome that you have to get, which is a meeting so you can turn it into a, an opportunity. They don't want to bother them, especially the, the more senior people. They think, well, they've already done their time. And then what happens because they don't, make them do the work that they need to do. Um, when they lose their giant client that they've been living off of for three years, they go into a tailspin because they weren't required to do the work of being a salesperson. Mm -hmm. And I have one client who had 78 people in a role that was a sales role, and none of them did any prospecting. They decided to move them all into account management, taking, re reducing their salary and their bonuses. One of the 78 quit. The other 77 were happy to get into a role where they were no longer required to prospect. Mm. That's a true story. And if you don't make them quit, you're harming them. So one of the things that I believe is that you have to have a high standard. And if you have a high standard for people and they do the good work that they're capable of under your help and with you, with you helping them along, then they're going to be successful and Doug, you, and you had somebody in your life, I don't know who it was, at least I hope you had somebody, uh, that looked at you and said, uh, Burdett, you're way better than this. You're, you're not doing the work that you should be doing. And if you did that work, you would get a much better result and you would be world class in this. And if that's a coach. It could have been your teacher, a preacher, your, your parent, uh, somebody that you know, was a football coach, I don't know, whatever it was. But that's who you have to be as a leader for everybody on your team. You have to figure out what do they need from you. And the best leaders can look at somebody and see the potential in them, even when they can't see the potential themselves. And that is, uh, I think, one of the great skills of a leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A company commander I had in the Army, he comes to mind, Rob Gordon. And, uh, yep, you've got that to a T. Let me read uh, from page 231 related to this prospecting. Where you write, let me remind you here of a serious and significant threat, one that is difficult to reverse and that will cost you years without revenue growth. 
Companies with marketing that results in new leads for the sales force can lapse into a situation where the sales team stops prospecting, becoming dependent on marketing for leads. Over time, as the leads slow down, the sales force becomes less and less willing to do the work themselves, preferring to sit and wait for the next thimble of increasingly sparse lead data. It might be faster and easier to release the whole sales force, burn down your office building, and start over from scratch. And it goes on, no matter how or why your sales force is busy, never, ever allow them to stop prospecting. It would be easier to colonize Mars than to get a team that has not had to prospect to start prospecting again. And then you go on to write, you could even use those leads as rewards for creating new opportunities, passing them out to the salespeople who are already winning targeted accounts in their territory. Feed your hunters. Starve those who refuse to hunt. So one other question. Explain the following. You write, when a salesperson says they have their own style, what they mean is that they don't have an effective approach and that they're smarter than you, your sales leadership team, and anyone else who cares about sales effectiveness. That's uh, 100% true. When they say they have a style, it means that I'm probably going to sit down across from you, Doug, and I'm going to say, Doug, uh, your wife is beautiful. Your children, your dog, especially your dog. <laughs> this has been quiet this whole time, by the way. Yeah. Um, they They try to build rapport. Then they start trying to make some sort of a connection with the person. And then they start trying to get credibility by talking about their company. And instead of creating value for the client, they're really just trying to position their company and their, their products. And it just doesn't work. And I think that when we let people do something the way that they want to, because they're comfortable for it, that's fine if it's working, but when it doesn't work, and most of the time, these kinds of things don't work anymore. We've got to give them a better sales approach and ensure that they use it. So it's a different time. Buyers need something different. You know this because you're in marketing and buyers are different now. They've got a lot of information. They're researching on their own. They're waiting to talk to salespeople until they've done some of their own research. And they bring you in much, much later. And I think that that is something that's changed dramatically. And if you're not aware of what you have to do to create value for a client, the easiest way to think of it is how do you educate them about the decision that they're making and how do you educate them in a way that will ensure that they get through their buyer's journey and get the better results that they've been pursuing. You've got a chapter on strategy, uh, strategies. And I want you to explain the following because I think that might help people with some of the terms. You write that sales leaders sometimes choose the wrong strategy, ruining their sales force and failing to grow the revenue. But where sales organizations really get in trouble is allowing salespeople to practice a strategy that doesn't match their goals. I wish I was wrong on this. I'm not, though. I had a client who brought a new service to an industry. And their sales team was spending time with clients explaining how this was going to change their business. But the senior leader didn't want them to have more than one meeting. And what happened was that's, that leader had 80% of the contracts that the salespeople went out with 
come back signed. That sounds really good. But then when I asked for the data on how many of them actually started to execute, the number was 12%. And the strategy wasn't the strategy wasn't right because she believed that it was a a one call close and I could go in with this complicated thing that people had never seen before. And my job was to say, let them have as many meetings as they need, because if you, when you lose, you're going to be in a land war. I mean, it's going to be a, a land grab at that particular time. And uh, I lost that. I lost that. And the sales force lost it too. And this, the eventual, I mean, it was every bad ex, every bad outcome you could think of happened because of this. And it's because the strategy wasn't right. And the senior leader didn't understand that it was going to take three or four meetings to get this done. But had they done that, they would have been wildly successful. Instead, they gave up a large part of the time they needed for the land grab. Mm. In that instance, Anthony, did that leader have a sales background? Uh, yeah, but just had a belief that wasn't in line with reality. And I don't know if you know this, Doug, but reality doesn't really care about your opinion. It just does reality. You, know, you you can say, I don't really like this, but reality is like, okay, get over it, Doug. Yeah. I'm reality. And, and yeah, denial so, is not just a river in Egypt. It It is that too, though. In this case, it was total denial. And uh, it was difficult for me just because I don't like to see salespeople be poorly led. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think it serves them. It didn't serve the company and it didn't serve the clients. Oh. So I'm more, I think of this in all of like a stakeholder sort of thing. The, the rep that doesn't make the money, doesn't bring it home to his family. I mean, you start just going down that path and you think everybody loses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have to have good leadership. Yeah. That story in the book was blowing up of the Hindenburg came to mind. It was just, it, it was just so preventable and it, uh, it happened. Let's jump to, uh, Another section, and let me ask you, why do some sales organizations produce growth year after year, while similarly situated competitors wallow in stagnation, often for years on end? And I'll give you a hint. <laughs> that sounded like a whip. Um, I don't want to know any more about that. Um, I think you're talking about accountability. So accountability is it's a specific type of accountability. And that type of accountability is a positive culture of accountability. It's not punishment. Right. So you can't be punitive. Yeah. And you can't be a tyrant and, and say, I'm always going to get my way on these things. So you can go back and forth between the consensus builder and the autocrat and the strategic and the transactional and all the other roles that you have to have. But without accountability, it's very difficult for salespeople to succeed over a long period of time and keep growing every year. And it's because of that accountability that people are doing the right work in the right way at the right time at all times. And when they get that right and everybody's doing the same thing in the right way all the time, then they continue to grow year after year after year. There's just more revenue. They keep growing. And it's because of the culture and we underestimate how important the culture is when it comes to a, a sales organization who can get discouraged. And there's not a lot of uh, other roles. Like if you're in an operational role, you don't have clients coming in and telling you no 
or that we're going to buy from somebody else and all these things. Those things may happen to you, but it's the salesperson that has to go out and do all of this particular work. And I think it's really important that you're positive, optimistic, future-oriented, and you realize that none of this is really a rejection of you. Even though salespeople say, how do you deal with rejection? It's like, they didn't reject you. Mm -hmm. They rejected the value proposition, or they thought somebody else was going to be a better fit, and you can learn from all those things. You either have a loss or you have a, a learning, one of the two. Uh, you can have both of those if you want. You, when the, you take the loss, you turn it into a learning, and you figure out how to do better the next time. But I care deeply about that. And some of the things in the second part of this, Doug, with the structures, you can set up structures that make it way easier for you to hold people accountable because the structure holds them accountable. So mm -hmm. something like self-reporting. It's one thing for me to look at a dashboard and look for Doug and see how he's doing. It's another thing for Doug to have to say, uh, I haven't created any new opportunities in three weeks. Now they're going to feel something about that when they say that. And it creates a different kind of accountability that they feel themselves by having to self-report that. So accountability is not a, a bad word. And in the book, you explain how to do it right to the point where people will really like it and they'll find find it more helpful and they'll be more successful. And you talk about you end up getting commitment. It's not compliance. You get commitment and right. you enroll people in these new behaviors and beliefs. But related to accountability, I want you to explain what you mean when you say we've made a major mistake by relying on technology to track our sales forces activities and results. Yeah. I'm on the other side of a lot of people on this, this particular issue. I don't think it's healthy to look at a dashboard and notice that people have different uh, performances and then not do anything about it. And if you don't have a conversation with them and make them self-report, I think you're harming them because they don't actually feel that accountability, even though they know you're looking at the dashboard. And I think the technology cannot do the same thing as a leader. And the leader can have a, a much better impact by not worrying about the scoreboard and looking at all the data, but actually having a conversation with the people that work for them. Yeah. Jumping ahead to uh, the, the chapter on people, you write that while skills are important, uh, I would suggest that character traits count for much more when it comes to results. So can you explain what you mean when you say skills versus character traits and do you find that companies tend to do the opposite, focus more on skills than character traits? They hire on skills that they've never even seen practiced. And th that what I mean by that is they'll look at the resume and say, this person's been in our industry and they're a B2B salesperson. Uh, we can hire them. Mm -hmm. Not so fast. <laughs> and they may be thinking, oh, and they're going to bring a book of business too. Yeah, and they're not. <laughs> right. uh, the thing that I worry about is... When you have something, so sales is a complex, dynamic conversation, and part of the decision to buy from you is your performance, and not just the performance in the sales conversation, but are you reliable? Are you credible? Do you have business acumen? Um, are you the kind of person that takes initiative? Are you self-disciplined? 
can I count on you when something happens to show up here when we have a problem and then you're going to stand here with me and help me solve it? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these kind of character things are being measured, whether or not uh, the salesperson believes it or whether or not it's even just unconscious to the to the buyer. So I think it's really important that you get the character traits right because you can have great skills. I've seen some of the best cold callers, um, I mean, unbelievably good at it, make no calls because they lack self-discipline. And I've seen really good salespeople with really bad attitudes infect the whole rest of a team and ruin a team because of their negativity. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to look at the whole individual and not just... I mean, it's easy to find somebody that's got sales on the resume and hire them, but to have somebody that's going to be successful is a very different conversation. Yes, you're right. Most sales managers believe they are hiring for skills and experience, but when they must fire a salesperson, it's more likely because of a character deficit than a skill deficit. Now, let's talk about effectiveness, because I mentioned earlier that you are very focused on effectiveness. And you write that the mistake that most sales leaders make is accepting their sales force's current effectiveness level, never prioritizing the initiatives that would increase their ability to both create and win the new opportunities necessary to grow their revenue. What, Anthony Anarino, are some of the most effective ways to improve effectiveness? We have to start with Abraham Lincoln here because it's one of my favorite stories, right? He, he said, if I had six hours to, to chop down a tree, I would spend the first four hours sharpening my axe. Yes. How dull was that axe? Like that dull, that's a dull axe if it takes four hours, right? I don't know. But I do think that the general idea there is if you're not getting better, you're probably getting worse and you're going to go out and do this activity, but the activity isn't going to be effective enough. And I think it's really, really important for people to understand this. If you're in sales, what you want is the growth and the development that allows you to be more effectiveness. And I saw this, um, there's a book out. I can't tell you what the name is because I I put it in my to-do list. I'm going to buy it. But apparently the average win rate for a salesperson on a deal that is $100,000 is 17%. That is incredibly low. That is an incredibly low number. And you can't grow if you can't win enough deals. And instead of worrying about what technology are we going to buy them and what is this thing and that other thing, our policies, whatever those happen to be, the most important thing has to be the effectiveness for two reasons. One, you're sitting down from a client who needs help, so they need you to be really good at this conversation. You need to be an expert in the conversation so you can do this. And the second thing is the salesperson needs to be effective enough that they can reach their goals because no company reaches their goals when their people don't reach their goals. And I think that that is the most important thing. So if you think about developing them, what you're looking for, and I think you sent me something on... um, on LinkedIn about fat tails. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to move everybody past the 50% mark and moving them over so you have a big fat tail instead of a bell curve. Mm -hmm. You don't want a bell curve. You want one that's shaped very differently. And I've been able to do that in a number of organizations that I was the sales leader of by just focusing on the effectiveness of the conversation. 
And then once the effectiveness of the conversations start to take, then all of a sudden you have people that have 85 and 90% win rates on multi-million dollar deals. And that's when you can really start getting uh, real growth. So I know that. You don't have to accept the hand you're dealt. <laughs> you can actually improve the effectiveness of your team. But it, it relates to sales training. I see uh, pitfalls of it. What, what What are some of the reasons that a lot of sales training fails. We call it checkbox training. And check checkbox training is uh, HR said that you have to train your salespeople this year. And uh, they will have one day and they'll get one big piece of content as if everybody has the same problem all at the same time. And then they won't hold them accountable for the behavioral changes. Managers probably won't even be part of the training and all of those things end up causing people not to make the behavioral changes that are the only way to become more effective. And I, I would ask you, Doug, when you showed up in the Army, I'm sure they were thrilled to have you, and mm -hmm. you were probably a perfect soldier uh, day one, right? I'm asking the fucking questions here, Private. Do you understand? <laughs> I understand. The Army, the training there, it... It was, uh, well, I think like for effective sales training or any kind of training, it's, it's, it needs to be more of a marinade, not just a one-time thing. It's like, for instance, in the Army, uh, marksmanship is real important. So they don't go to the range in boot camp and then never go back. <laughs> it's, it's a hard right. skill right. to continue to uh, nurture. You kind of want to be effective if you actually need that skill, right? <laughs> Yeah, kind of kind of important. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of important. That that's the way to think about this here. Like you showed up there, and they're like, "Who wants to take Doug?" Like <laughs> nobody. Mm. All right, let's give him to somebody. And then all of a sudden, what? A year later, you're you're a different person, right? Yeah, you're not it's, sure. <laughs> a better person? I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm starting. We're starting to unpack a lot of psychiatric issues that I have. No. I'm, 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 I'm kidding. No, it was it was great. I'm fucking standing. So, you write that uh, again. Back to leadership. Part of your job as a sales leader is to shield your team from tasks and projects that might prevent net new revenue. Okay, what what are examples of that that sales leaders allow their people to get involved in? I mean, the first one I already talked about with with the seventy eight people. They decided that they were going to be account managers. They decided that I'm not going to do any prospecting. I'm just going to work on these couple accounts that I have. And now, listen, some of them are doing $40 million with a couple accounts. And I'm always horrified of that because when you have so much in one account and you lose it, you lose almost all of your revenue and all your, all your income. So I, I worry about that. But I think that the way that we have to think about these sort of things is they are the only people in a company that's going out and creating new opportunities, pursuing those opportunities and winning those opportunities. So if they get dragged into the company Christmas party, or they get dragged into, you have to manage these clients, or you have to go be a collector, a collector right, right now. All of those things take them out of the sales role, which means as a sales leader, I have people that are missing from my team because they're not doing the work that they need to do for the sales organization that they belong to. And I do think you have to put a bubble around them and protect them from those sort of things and the negativity that sometimes comes 
uh, inside sales organizations. You have to uh, try to keep them safe from that too. Mm-hmm. And there was a part in the book where you mentioned uh, like another department wants like two salespeople to serve on a committee or, or help with something. And yeah. you said, okay, yeah. great. Send me, let's say it was accounting that wanted them. Okay, send me two of your accountants to, to do some cold calling. <laughs> and, Good luck. Yeah, right. It's like, okay, sure. Yeah, you can have them, but I'm, I'm going to need some more people back here, uh, you know, moving, moving deals along. You're not going to find any volunteers. No, no. Now, this, this part I want to read, and it's really going to upset some marketing folks, but it's really instructive, and I think it's very important. This is in the chapter on protecting the sales force, and it's uh, from page 222, which is uh, a section about beware outsider advice. I guess uh, salespeople get a lot of advice from people that have never worked in sales. Is that, is that a thing, Anthony? Yeah, Absolutely. So 100%. you were talking about how, uh, let's see, you write, uh, recently I had a conversation with a marketing expert. I was explaining that some salespeople don't know the difference between a lead, a prospect, and an opportunity. I shared that a lead is nothing more than a name, a phone number, and an email address. The leads are weak. A prospect is someone who may benefit from what you sell. An opportunity is a prospect who is engaged in a conversation around change. My marketing expert claimed those distinctions were why sales and marketing can't communicate, even though they are both responsible for creating revenue, but that isn't the biggest reason for the chasm between them. What follows isn't very nice, and it isn't going to win me or you any popularity contest with the marketing folks, but it's the truth. With very few exceptions, most marketers do not spend time with prospective clients. Many wouldn't be able to point at your company's largest and most profitable client if they saw them in a police station lineup. Yet the marketing department is dead set on ruining sales calls by making salespeople answer, why us? A question that clients simply aren't asking. Normally, they waste 8 to 12 slides and 20 minutes on this question, an approach we can describe as a terrible first date. The poor, long-suffering decision-maker who hoped your salesperson might help them improve their results is first required to live through what amounts to a filibuster. Should you be required to use this approach on a first sales call, you have my permission to lie and suggest that your team is following mm-hmm. the program to the letter. By actually helping your clients instead, you are no doubt saving lives and deals. Those 8 to 12 slides can be transferred to the very end of the presentation as a way to explain the resources your company will provide to ensure the client succeeds. Marketing can play an important role for the sales function, but typically they are not yet aware that sales calls must answer the question, why change? You can improve interdepartmental relationships and your results if you ask marketing to develop this content for you. So I want people to email Anthony uh, directly, all you marketers. Uh, I'm going to make it real easy to contact him. But I gather the fact that you have this in the book, you see this a lot? Yeah. And and as a marketer, you know that marketing is one to many. It's one to many. That's what marketing is for. It's awareness in making sure that you answer why us. But it's not one to one. Mm -hmm. So when you're one to one, that's a very different conversation that we have to have. And because that's true, it does ruin the, the conversation. I've seen a few very good marketing groups that answer why us so well 
that uh, their their content's amazing for salespeople to use because it's it's on point for a one to one conversation about change. And so that that is the big difference. And when they have to go through this, I do give people permission. I had one person say, "My manager's coming with me, and he really wants me to use the the legacy approach." And he said, what should I do? And I said, chloroform and duct tape, uh, lock them in the trunk and come back out and uh, revive him. I mean, you you can't go in and, and do that and be successful anymore. So you have to find a way. And I have a whole bunch of people that lie to their managers because they want to win deals. Only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. <sighs> You're always causing trouble, Anthony Anarino. So, Anthony, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Help your team. I mean, if if you're a leader, the one thing I would want you to do is to just engage with your team at all times, spend time with them, learn about them, understand what their intrinsic motivations are, and help them grow. Well said. What is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book? I would say the first thing, if you're a leader and you don't have a vision that you've written that says, this is where we're going, this is who we're going to become, these are the things that we're going to have to change, start there. That is the best starting point you can have. That's why I put it as a first chapter. Once you get that, you're in better shape. Is it also one of the hardest? Well, it, it is if you're the kind of person that thinks you have to get it right on the first draft. Mm. If, if you're the kind of person that thinks I have time to iterate, uh, it's not that hard. And mm-hmm. you're going to keep seeing things and adjusting as you go. So you've got over 4,600 blog posts. Was your very first one perfect? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was perfectly uh, cluttered with um, bad grammar and poor punctuation. <laughs> but you got started and you stayed with it. So are there any uh, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? If I can give you one book to read... Buy a book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zahan. It's probably the most important book for you to read right now, uh, no matter what you do. Oh, interesting. I had not heard about that. The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Oh, I have heard about this. I think it was mentioned on uh, one of the other episodes. Yes, very interesting. Must read. I appreciate you you telling me about that. At marketingbookpodcast.com, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned and your website and that resource page, your LinkedIn profile, your, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Anthony and congratulate him on this book. Congratulate him on uh, all the discount coupons he's going to get for Taco Bell by being a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. Oh, yeah, the rewards are there. And thank you for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast once again <laughs> and putting up with my really uh, stupid jokes. The, the guests on the show have told me uh, every week that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And then one of the best things you could do if you have a question, ask him a question. And as I often say, they, they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple, so your Apple Podcast, so you never miss an episode, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, 
One reason I wrote this book is because too many salespeople have been thrust into their roles without any training or development and without an understanding how to do their number one job, generate new revenue. Many sales managers were selected for the role because they were highly effective in that role of salesperson, not because they have the natural ability to lead. That might be you, or it might be someone you know. And then further down on uh, this page, I want to thank you for buying Leading Growth, reading it, and implementing the strategies, tactics, and structures we've explored together. I hope you use them to help your team succeed and in helping their clients succeed and to reach their goals and yours. Nothing in this book is easy to execute, but I believe it's all worth the effort. I also believe sales management is one of the more difficult positions one might agree to take on because most people don't understand how challenging it is to create net new revenue, something that only occurs when a salesperson has a conversation that creates enough value that their prospective client signs a contract and pays for what we sell. The book is Leading Growth, the Proven Formula for Consistently Increasing Revenue. The author is Anthony Anarino. Anthony, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to double my effort to write books so that I can catch up with Jeb. Sweet. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.